The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. I was walking across the board. It was about a two by six board, which means it's five and a half inches wide. It was 12 feet off the ground. We were building a house and we decided to do some of the work ourselves. And once you put a top plate on, if you know much about construction, as you're walking across that, or as you put a top plate, you want to put a double top plate to make all the measurements match. And so we were going around walking. I was told I was supposed to walk this double, this top plate, bend over, and nail like that. I'm a preacher. I'm not a construction man. By the time I got about five minutes in, I was straddling the top plate, and I was scooting along it, doing it like that. Because I'm not, I can't remember her name, Simone, whatever her name was, that won the Olympics. I can't walk a beam like that. And it reminds me a little bit about this path that Todd introduced last week to us. This, this path, this, this path that's very narrow, that as we try to walk it, it gets kind of scary and kind of dicey. It's called the path of disciplined grace. What's that mean? What's the path of disciplined grace? It's it's this sweet spot, if you will, that, that as you're walking along this path, you are in that spot where God wants his disciples to be. Where is a a disciple supposed to be? Well, as, as we are learning, as we've learned, a disciple is someone who does what Jesus did. A disciple is someone who teaches what Jesus taught, and a disciple is someone who can represent Jesus in his absence. And so we have this path of disciplined grace. What does that mean? You see, there's this danger on either side of this path. One of those dangers we might fall into, this pit, and we talked about that, Todd talked about that last week. It's called antinomianism, which we use the word justification. Someone who goes through the Bible and sees the scriptures that say, you know what, we're saved by grace. And if we're saved by grace, we don't need to do anything to be righteous. And I'll do as Todd did, and we're swimming in that grace. Maybe that was you last week as Todd was sharing that. But there's this other pitfall we're going to talk about today. And I can just tell you right now, this says someone who's lived in this pit for a long time, there's not a lot of swimming going on. Matter of fact, you feel kind of stuck. Matter of fact, being stuck over here in this pit, we look over at all you people that are over here just kind of swimming, and we're kind of mad. Because we're doing the right thing. We're doing what we're supposed to do. And we're stuck in this idea of moral relativity or moralism, if you will. And, And we're trying to be righteous. And by being righteous, somehow we're earning our place with God. And we're looking over there and you guys are having fun. And we're over here sitting there going, man, this is hard. See, there's these disciplines that... That you know them, you've heard them. It's, maybe it's studying the word, maybe it's praying, maybe it's meditating, maybe it's celebrating, maybe it's worshiping and serving and solitude. And there's all kinds of spiritual disciplines that you can look at. And we see those and we're like, I got to get on it. I got to try to do all these things. And as I'm trying to do all these things, somewhere along the way, I lose this idea 
of grace. And the problem is, is that the path that we're trying to walk that's so narrow that we're trying to stay balanced on and not fall off into one of these two heresies is found when grace and spiritual disciplines collide. When they come together and form this beautiful thing. And when that happens, when that happens, we grow in righteousness. But you have to remember something. And I'm talking to you, if you're struggling with what I'm going to be talking about today, I have to talk to you for just a moment and help you understand. Spiritual disciplines are a path to righteousness, but hear me. They do not make you better. They do not help you not sin. They do not make you more righteous or save you. But they do position you so that Jesus can do all those things in your life. This path of discipline grace we want to walk on. And maybe last week you were, you know, you were like, ah, this, this is me, I'm struggling with this, and antinomianism, justification, I'm justifying everything. I, it doesn't matter what I do because God's going to save me by grace. Maybe that was you. Maybe you're more like me and you're sitting there going, okay, yeah, I don't really have that problem. I wish I had more of that problem. But I struggle with this moralism. You swing the pendulum all the way over to the other side and you struggle with moralism. And, and don't you think it probably comes naturally to us because we live in a society that's performance-based. You agree with me there? We live in a performance-based society. Everything in society seems to be based on performance. You may not admit this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you this is true whether you admit it or not. We accept people. We like people based on their behavior, right? We like or don't like them based on if they say the right thing, do the right thing, believe the way we believe. Sometimes we even do that with our own family because we struggle. We don't have the ability that Jesus does to completely, unconditionally love people the way they probably need to be loved. We try. We try hard. But we struggle with that. And, you know, popularity and acceptance even. Sometimes even advancement is based on our performances. You go to school, what do you get? A report card. You go to work, what do you get? A performance review. The real estate commission has a code of ethics. HOAs have covenants. Sport, sporting events have trophies. But somehow this has even bled over into our faith. It's bled over into our church. You, you go, you, it starts when you're little. I don't know if we do this. I'm not as familiar with Summit Kids yet. But you, did, you, did anybody here go to church and you got gold stars when you did the right thing? Anybody? Yeah, we got those little gold stars. And we worked hard to get those gold stars. Or, or maybe you go to church camp and you memorize a verse and they give you a candy bar, right? It, it, it bleeds over into our faith where, where we, I even got, when I was growing up, perfect attendance for going to Sunday school. Anybody get those pins? Yeah. Yeah, you remember those? I, my mom and dad, when we were on vacation, we would go to church and we'd come back and we had to bring a bulletin. I don't know why they didn't trust us. My dad was the preacher. but We still had to prove we had a bulletin. We went to church. We got that pen, man. I don't know how many years I had, but it feels like about 25, but I don't think it was. But We, we have all these things that we, we give people awards for being righteous. And let me remind you again that all these things, these spiritual disciplines that we're trying to do, this attempt to be righteousness, to be righteous, this, this attempt to not sin anymore is meaningless 
if we don't allow ourselves to be motivated by a love for God and for wanting to do what God wants us to do, just to be close to him. Let me give you a couple examples from the Bible. First of all, let me give you an example of, of the Pharisees. You remember those guys? We like to beat them up. They're real easy to beat up. But if you go to church very long, you find out they didn't disappear. There's a lot of us that are a lot, look a lot like the Pharisees if we're not careful. And, and they had all these laws. They had all these rules. Now, you've got to take the law of God, the Torah, and you have all these laws that God laid out. But then the Pharisees said, you know what? We don't think people can handle it by themselves, so let's come up with our own laws. Does this sound familiar? And they came up with 613 different laws that they were trying to protect the people from breaking God's law. The problem is, is those laws became just as important, if not more important, than God's laws. And so they fall, fell into this trap. And there's this, this, this trap of outward and empty rule following. Moralism. If you, if you have your Bibles in Luke chapter 11, we see Jesus addressing this to someone. He says this. Then it says, then the Lord said to him, now then you Pharisees clean the ins- outside of the cup and the dish. But inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you Pharisees, for you give God a tenth of your mint and rue and all other kinds of garden herbs. But you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Empty rule following. J.D. Greer in his book, Gospel, says this. Without love, even the most radical devotion to God is of no value to him. You can gain all the spiritual gifts in the world. You can take the most radical steps of obedience. You can share every meal with the homeless in your city. You can memorize the book of Leviticus. You can pray each morning for four hours like Martin Luther. But if what you do does not flow out of a heart of love, a heart that does those things because it is genuinely desires to do them, it is ultimately worthless to God. Empty rule following with no inner change. There's another example I want to share with you. It was a lady by the name of Martha. You find her story in Luke chapter 10, just a few pages over. And, and Martha, we'll just call her the one that worked, the busy worker bee for Jesus. The one that's just going to try harder, that's just going to do a whole lot more. You remember Martha. It's a great story. Look, follow along in verse 38. It says, while Jesus and his followers were traveling, Jesus went into a town. A woman named Martha let him stay in her house. And Martha had a sister named Mary, catch this, who was sitting at Jesus' feet listening to him teach, but Martha was busy with all the work to be done. So she went in and said to him, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me alone to do all the work? Tell her to help me. The Lord answered her, Martha. She wasn't listening, so I had to say her name again. Martha, you were worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is important. Mary has chosen the better thing, and it will never be taken from her. Anybody with me? 
Anybody over here falling in this pit and you just keep trying harder, just keep trying harder. If I just keep trying harder, it's got to get better, right? If I just keep trying harder, surely God's going to see that and he's going to give me a gold star and he's going to give me a candy bar and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. I just feel stuck. I just feel stuck. And I'm mad because those people over there are having fun. And God says, that's not the answer. The answer is this path of discipline grace. But it seems like this is the right way, doesn't it? I mean, is it just me? Doesn't it seem like this is the right way? Surely sitting around doing nothing is not the right way. I know if it, it wouldn't be your opinion if you didn't think it was right, correct? So, I mean, this doesn't seem right. This seems right. Just work harder. Just do more things, and surely it'll work. But I don't know about you, but just when it comes to the idea of trying to overcome sin, anybody try harder, and it just doesn't work? It doesn't work. But, but, but I read scriptures like Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, where he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Paul doubles down on that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where he tells us that God's will is for you to be sanctified and live a holy life. And so it just seems like this is right. So how do I reconcile that? I do it by this. Outward behavior without inner change, without love, without grace, without proper motivation is worthless. Busy, right living, Martha-type busyness, working for God, trying harder without a relationship with him is exhausting and futile and meaningless. Paul Tripp uses this illustration. Imagine with me that your tree is dead. You go outside and you have a dead tree. J.D. Greer uses a rose bush, whichever one works for you. Imagine that your tree is dead, but you want to have fruit on it. So you go get some apples and you start stapling them to the dead branches. That would work, right? How long would those apples last? Not very. But somehow you've created this beautiful dead apple tree that's got all these live apples on it for a while. And he says that's what moralism is equivalent to. It's like we take this dead tree that has no relationship with God and we hang, we hang and staple live fruit on a dead tree somehow thinking that makes us look like someone who follows Jesus. But Paul blows this idea completely out of the water. If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 2. Let me share with you two scriptures, Galatians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 2. And I want you to hear how Paul says this is not the right way. Trying harder, empty rule following is not going to get it done. Here's what he says, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. 
For through the law I died to the law so that I could live to God. For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. For I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Do you hear it? Do you hear it? We're not justified by trying harder. We're not justified by working harder. We're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 2 and says a similar thing. This is probably familiar to some of you. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10, he says this. For you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now alive in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, uh, you can underline that in your Bible. That's the biggest but statement in the world. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love by which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I was visiting a lady who was sick. It's a lady who grew up in the church. As a matter of fact, she walked away from the church because of all of this, because of all this righteous living, all of this moralism, and all these do's and don'ts and behavior control, if you will, that religion tends to, to, to make, you, make you do, and, make, and it turned her off. And her entire life, she's in her 60s, her entire life she rejected the church because of this. And now she was in a, she's in a position where her life is coming, maybe coming to an end. She's been really sick. And so she was sharing to me, asking me a question. I said, no, it's not this. It's about the grace of Christ. It's not about what we do. It's about what he has done. And, 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 she, and so you know what she did? She swung all the way over here. Because she said, okay, so now I know where I'm going because I'm a good person. I know where I'm going because everything's good now. And as Jeff Walling said, and I kind of said a while ago, we don't go to heaven because of what we do. We go to heaven because of what he did. Jefferson Bethke in his book, Jesus is Greater Than Religion, says it more like this. Jesus made it very clear that he's not after our external behaviors, but instead after our hearts. He doesn't want what you do. He just wants you. The Bible isn't a rule book. It's a love letter. I'm not an employee. I'm a child. It's not about my performance. It's about Jesus' performance for me. When I was trying to earn Jesus by being good, I missed the real Jesus 
who wants us to love him and serve him, not for what he gives us, but for who he is. So what do we do? I've laid out a problem for you. What do we do? We're, we're trying really hard to get up on this narrow and stay up on this narrow, you know, path of discipline and grace. And for those of us who struggle with moralism, what's hard is this becomes another item on our to-do list, right? So how, what do we do? We don't want to fall in this pit, even though it sounds fun to be swimming. And really, after today, you don't want to fall in this pit because it sounds really stifling and like you're in bondage. How, what do we do? The, the band's going to come, and, and let me just share with you as they're coming, what we need to do. How, how do we respond to all of this? How do I somehow let, as Paul has so beautifully shown, let spiritual dis- discipline co- collide with the grace of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross? How do I do, what do I do? How do I respond to this? First of all, you need to live out of your desire for God. You need to live out of your desire for God. What's that mean? Let me illustrate it this way. My wife, Charlotte, can you imagine if I were to love her to somehow try to earn something from her? Now, some of you may have a marriage like that, and you probably need counseling. But I don't love her to try to earn something from her. I love her. I, I, I do stuff for her because I love her. That's what it means to live out of your desire for God. The more I desire God, the more I want to to. To be in his presence. I don't want to make anybody feel guilty today. Todd said I was going to rip you a new one. I, I'm not going to do that. But let me ask you a question. Because this may help a little bit in this. Don't raise your hand, please. Wait till the lights are down. Then you can come ask for prayer if this is you. But, but how many of us, when we see an ice storm's coming, think, oh, yeah, I don't have to go to church? Versus maybe you see an ice storm coming and you're going, I sure hope it doesn't get so bad that I can't go to church. Do you see the difference? God's not checking you off today because you were here. But hopefully you're here because you couldn't stand to not be in his presence and with his people. Live out of your desire. Live out of that desire. But what else can you do? You also can rest in God. Last week, Todd told you to practice the discipline of prayer and fasting. I hope some of you did that. I hope I I spent some time praying. I didn't make it to the fasting, if I'm going to be completely honest with you, but I spent some extra time praying this week. I want to say rest in God. If you're over here busy, 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 and you feel in bondage, you know the best way to get free? Meditation and solitude. You need to practice some Just rest before God. And and lastly, what do you do? How how do you respond to this? You need to worship and serve. Your behavior needs to be out of your gratitude for what God has already done for you. Is the cross enough? If God never gives you one more thing, is the cross enough? Your worship and your service, and by the way, service, the word worship can be actually translated from the original language as service. So your worship and service should be a result of the gratitude that you have for what Jesus did for you. J.D. Greer says, a Christianity that does not have as its primary focus the deepening of passions for God is a false Christianity. 
No matter how zealously it seeks conversion or how forcefully it advocates righteous behavior, true worship is obedience to God for no other reason than that you will delight in God. We are changed not by being told what we need to do for God, but by hearing the news about what God has done for us. So in a moment, we're going to sing some songs and there's going to be some people up here and you're going to be able to respond to this message. Maybe you'll sit right there and it'll just be worship because of what Jesus has done for you. But maybe there's some people just like me that are over here struggling. And you need to come and you need to say, God, release me. Help me find that grace. Before we do that, let me see if I can illustrate it this way. I want you to imagine with me that my wife is going to get her hair done. So I put her in the car, didn't put her in the car, she gets in the car, and drive her to that place where she's getting her hair done. And I decide I'm going to drop you off here because I don't know if you've ever been there, but I didn't want to stay there. It smells, it's, you know, I had no desire to stay there. So drop her off, and I'm going to go hang out with the guys for a while, and all I got to do is come back and pick her up. But, but I go to the mall with my friends, or we go hang out, and, and I forget to pick her up. Yeah. yeah. She's nice, but yeah, not a good idea. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you that my parents are coming over for dinner that night. And my wife's going to cook the meal. So that's one of the reasons she's getting her hair done. And so, so, so she's getting her hair done, and I forget to pick her up, and it starts to rain. Yeah. So, so when I don't come pick her up, she decides to go ahead and walk home because she's got to make dinner. What a wonderful wife I have, right? And so uh, all of a sudden... She gets home, she calls me, and, and, and she's like, Nathan, what happened? You didn't pick me up. So I, I'm like, oh, man, I'm in trouble. I, 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 look, I, I, I drive home as fast as I can. As I'm pulling in the driveway, I look down the road, and I can see my parents' car pulling up. And I walk in. Best way I can describe the look on my wife is a wet poodle. She's in cutting vegetables, and she walks out with her butcher knife in her hand. And she looks me in the eye. She said, you promised. You promised. I look at her and I say, Cheryl, I'm sorry. I just got busy. You know, I was, I probably threw in something like I was counseling this guy who's having problems. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And she looks me in the eye, butcher knife in hand. She goes, I know you've been busy. A lot of things have been going on in our lives. How about you just give me a kiss and we'll call it even? Guys, what kind of kiss is that? What kind of kiss is that? I I, I ask you. Is it just like, oh, okay. Thanks a lot, honey. No. You would take her. You would dip her. You, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. How much does that remind you of your worship? Because Jesus stands with sword in hand. With the ability to destroy us, with the ability to destroy you. 
He said, how about we just call you forgiven? That's where the response of our worship comes from.